it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by my friend and co-host, Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru. Keaton, how are you today? Doing great. Getting through this thing about Red Sox, and that's fun. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been on the pod together. Um, Yeah. It's been like a really long time, actually. It feels like it's been over a month, because last time I was on, I had Ian Cundall on. That was at the beginning of the month, so... And we're yeah. here at the end of May. So, yeah, it's been like well over a month since we've been on a podcast. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, just hunkering down. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's the uh, that's the only answer these days unless you're in the Ozarks and, you know, <laughs> not social distancing hard. Um, but, yeah, uh, we're here to talk about some Red Sox today. Uh, with the draft coming up here in June, um, you know, it's not too far away. We're just a couple weeks out from the draft right now. Um, we're going to be talking about the Red Sox draft history, um, and then we have a couple of fun top 10 lists that we compiled about the draft uh, to discuss. We're going to be discussing our uh, top 10 Red Sox draft picks overall, um, and then we're also going to be looking at the top 10 value draft picks, and we both looked at that in a little bit of a different way, so we hope that you're going to enjoy that feedback. And then we also um, have a few listener questions that we're going to get to. Um, but let's get right started with it. Um, so, you know, the draft is coming up for the Red Sox and it's a little bit of a weird draft. And um, if you want to know more about that, uh, definitely tune into the episode that I recorded with Ian. But uh, essentially, it's going to be a five round draft, but the Red Sox are only going to have uh, four of those rounds uh, available to them uh, because their second round pick is gone uh, because of the punishment. Um, so... A uh, tough year for them to lose a draft pick, um, but you know the Red Sox still have a, I, I think, a slight advantage over some teams in that. And we talked about this a little bit with Ian that you know you can sign as many of these twenty thousand dollar players as you'd like to, uh, 
Um, and being an organization like the Red Sox, I think benefits that a little bit. Yep, it certainly does. It'll be really interesting to see how this goes, though. I'm, I, I actually I haven't seen. Do you know um, what the deadline is for folks that are going to, um, I guess, declare? Because I'm really interested to see that list and who is actually going to be eligible for the draft. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, thinking about the types of guys who would probably go to the draft, it seems like uh, if you are not going to have substantial leverage, you're probably going to declare because it seems like college baseball is going to be a bit of a cluster next year. True. But, well, actually, yeah, I guess. So do you think that most or maybe not most, but just what percentage of college seniors do you think are going to go back? College seniors? Yeah. Uh, I I think that anybody who thought that they were going to be drafted, even if they were going to be drafted late, are not going to go back if you're a college senior. Because we've seen what college seniors get in the past. Like, college seniors have zero leverage. They usually get like 10,000 bucks to sign. Right. But they do have leverage now because the NCAA said they could have another year. So do you think... I mean, how many, I guess, what what caliber of player would you think is going to go back and try and use that year to up their stock versus just say, well, you know what, I don't have any leverage anyway, I might as well go for it. I don't know. Um, I think that, I'll say this, I, I think that people who wouldn't have gone in the top five rounds anyway are not going to be holding out. I think that if what you were maybe let's just expand this maybe down to like top eight rounds. I think if you were going to get a bonus anywhere above like 150 K you might think about it. But if you realistically weren't going to get anything close to that, I think that most people are just going to opt to start their pro careers because there's a huge added advantage. I think uh, to some of these guys, even though they're going to get paid crap compared to what they would usually get, but being able to choose your organization, I think is underrated. Yeah, you may be right. You may be right. And that's that's why I'm really interested to see what the actual list of players is that'll be in the draft. And kind of see that breakdown of guys that are coming out versus going back to college for another year. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I agree. It's it's gonna be really interesting and I think that one good thing that's gonna come out of all this is that since there's, you know, not a whole lot of competition going on with other sports right now. Um, the MLB draft is probably going to get its biggest spotlight ever, so that can only be good for baseball, right? You would think so. Yeah, I mean... It's kind of a bummer that it's shortened to five rounds, but maybe that means people will stick with it. Yeah, right. Yeah, five rounds is going to go by pretty quick, um, which will make all of the signings that happen afterwards uh, really interesting. But before we get into that... Uh, just a couple maintenance and reminders at the top of the episode. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to this show, uh, please do so. You can subscribe to us on any of your podcast apps. Uh, we use iTunes, but you can use basically anything. You can also rate and review us on there. We always do appreciate that. 
And uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We are always putting out a lot of content on Twitter. Uh, everything I write, I put up there. I know Keaton does the same thing. We often retweet each other, uh, each other as well. You can also follow the Over the Monster account. So you can find Keaton at the Spoken Keats. You can find me at, at Dev Jake, And you can find the Over the Monster account at Over the Monster. So let's start talking about the Red Sox draft history a little bit. So the draft, as we know it, uh, started in 1965. It's had several different iterations since then. There's been a lot of changes over that period of time. There used to be two different drafts, and there used to be a lot different draft compensation. And now we have the model that we have, but that could be like five podcasts, so we won't get too much into that today. Um, But... One of the really amazing things about the draft is that the Red Sox have been really, really freaking good at it over the course of, you know, this existing since 1965. And uh, a great podcast that I listened to, the MLB Pipeline podcast, recently discussed, um, you know, some of the history in the draft. And they talked about uh, this success that the Red Sox have had. And I, I had three points that I took away Uh, from that podcast and I wanted to kind of read these off and then discuss some of these. Uh, So the first one that shocked me was that no team has generated more war from the draft than the Boston Red Sox and that the gap between the Red Sox and the second place Oakland Athletics was larger than the gap between the A's and the 11th place team the Braves and it was more than 5.2 war per draft higher than the A's. That is astounding. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it is that uh, reading through these uh, notes that you put together. That was uh, I had to kind of like read that one again just to make sure that I had read it correctly. Speak. I mean, that is such a massive gap. That's not what I would ex- would have expected. I don't know if I would have expected that the Red Sox would have been number one. I think I probably would have expected them to be kind of near the top. But mm-hmm. I mean, that, just that distance is kind of wild. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, And, you know, I I think you're right. There's a lot of other teams that we certainly think about as being very successful at the draft. Uh, The Dodgers, I mean, the Giants as well. Um, Yankees have had some good drafts. Um, I don't really think of them as that draft dominant, but the Braves are certainly another one. I was was surprised that the Braves were 11th. and the A's being second didn't really surprise me, but the degree uh, that the, the Red Sox have dominated this thing is certainly surprising to me. Um, one of the things, though, that we may take for granted around here, though, is the Red Sox ability to produce these top tier position players over and over and over again. It seems like every you know three or four years, the Red Sox are turning out a position player who is not just you know an all-star, an occasional all-star. I mean, the Red Sox produce a... Uh, transcendent player, it seems like, you know, one of the top 20, 15 players in baseball, top 10 player in baseball, even uh, fairly frequently. And looking back, as I have been doing over the course of writing this all-time Red Sox roster, it really does happen much more frequently than you see in other franchises. Yeah. I think a lot of people think of the Red Sox and being a big market team compared to like the Yankees and Dodgers as more free agent spenders than kind of nailing the draft and particularly with like recency bias if you're thinking about the last decade like we know that i mean they've had draft picks uh, stripped from them they've had uh bonus money uh shrunk and even just taken away completely so they've like missed international signings so the farm in general right now kind of has a bad stink to it 
Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking of recency bias, this is probably surprising, which is kind of how I was thinking about it too. Yeah. Um, and I was um, not to. Well, yeah, I'll wait until you get to your third point for it. Okay. Next, so I don't <laughs> skip your thought process. But much appreciated. Yeah. Um, kind of not what I was expecting, but you're not wrong about these transcendent players, and it's kind of consistent, um, particularly with position players, not so much with pitchers. But uh, you know, there's there are teams that we think of that kind of have like their thing that they just harvest and churn out like Tampa Bay and pitchers mm-hmm. kind of go hand in hand. And the Red Sox and position players are certainly kind of one of those teams that you would think of immediately as someone who can develop hitters and get the best out of them. Yeah. And they've certainly come up with a system. And, and I think that there is a lot of institutional knowledge that's been passed down um, throughout this process. Obviously the Red Sox have been doing something right for a really long time and you know, they do have a lot of scouts that have been around for, for quite some time. And, you know, while those people are changing jobs, a lot of that knowledge is still staying within the system. Um, so let's get to the second and third points here. Um, my second point is that the 1983 draft by the Red Sox, uh, the one that produced both Roger Clemens and Ellis Burks, uh, is largely considered to be the second best draft of all time if we're going by war. Um and MLB Pipeline pointed out that just those two players alone, Roger Clemens and Ellis Burks, actually combined for more war than any draft except for uh, the top draft, which was one of the 60s uh, Dodgers teams. So I'm, I'm going to blank on it, but I believe it was the 1968 Dodgers uh, draft, which produced over 200 war. But just those two players uh, produced over 180 war uh, together. Um, but the other crazy thing about this was that the Red Sox had three other drafts that were mentioned um, by MLB Pipeline as being among the best ever, including 76 when they drafted Wade Boggs, uh, 89 uh, when they drafted two MVPs, which is the only time that has ever occurred uh, in one draft when they drafted Mo Vaughn and Jeff Bagwell, and then in 68 as well, um, which uh, I believe 68 was the... Uh, Cecil Cooper, yeah, Cecil Cooper and uh, Bill Lee. And we don't think of Cecil Cooper much as a Red Sox player because he uh, basically had the the meat of his career with uh, the Milwaukee Brewers after a panic trade uh, to get Bernie Carbo and uh, George Scott back in 1976. But, you know, nonetheless, very impressive drafts right there. For sure. My favorite... um... Ellis Burks story, right? Really my only Ellis Burks story. So came back to the Red Sox, part of that 2014 veteran presence. Uh, and my dad was taking me to my first Red Sox game. And it got rained out. It was supposed to be against Tampa Bay. Uh, but being from Maine uh, and the Red Sox, waiting until the very last minute to cancel games. I think we were already in Boston by the time it got canceled. So we were like, well, screw it. Let's just walk around the park anyway. We stumbled upon a player's entrance. And uh, Keith Folk was just standing on the corner waiting for a cab because he had just been acquired. And um, some players were coming out, and we were trying to, like, figure out who they were and get uh, autographs. And this guy comes out with, like, three smoking hot women (laughs) with him. And we were like, who the hell could that possibly be? 
And the guy next to us was like, oh my god, that's Ellis Burks. And he turned, like, turns and looks at us and comes over and like signs some balls. And I was like, he was the only player that came out of the player's entrance like with people. And it was just three smoking hot girls. And at this point, he's like 38. Oh, yeah. I think 2004 might have been the last year of his career. And then he retired. Uh, he was living his best life. Yeah, that's amazing. If I recall correctly, in 2004, he was only with the team for like the very first part of the year, too, um, before... He was off the roster for some reason. I don't really remember what it was, but yeah, I mean, he had a transcendent career. Really, when you look at it, he he's not a Hall of Famer, but he is definitely a Hall of very good. Yeah, for sure. Pretty underrated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He had some great years with the Red Sox as well. Um, and then the the third point that I wanted to get to with uh, with the stats from MLB Pipeline was that the Red Sox have ranked in the top 10 in almost every single decade since the draft has started. So in the 60s, they were third in terms of war produced um, from 1965 to 1969. In the 70s, they were fourth. In the 80s, they were first. In the 90s, they were 17th, the only time they weren't in the top 10. In the 2000s, they were first. And in 2010, uh, till now, they were ninth. Uh, so we've had a little bit of a drop-off lately, but, man, things have been pretty good. Yeah, and that's what, um, thinking about, like, the recency bias and, like, recent Red Sox drafts in the current state of the farm. I mean, it's been, like, half the decade, really, like, the second half the decade that they've been criticized for uh, basically not really having much of a farm and not being able to replenish it in any sort of way through trades or draft picks through either – you know, no fault of their own or the fault of their own. But still being in the top 10 is really impressive. And I was curious if you removed Mookie Betts, where would, would I mean, I'm guessing they would not be in the top 10 at that point. But yeah, where, how far would they fall without Betts for that decade? Yeah, I think they'd fall pretty have, far. I, I yeah. think that they would fall drastically I, I would i would guess that if you take bets out of there they're probably a bottom uh fourth uh system in baseball or maybe bottom third at least but i think that you could say that for any one of these decades you know if you take like you know bogs out of the 80s they're definitely not first because that dude produced more war in the 80s than any other person in baseball yeah so I, I think that if you hit on one transcendent player per decade, like you're killing it in the draft. Yeah. I mean, and that's probably where the, just the consistency in the Red Sox ranks come from. You know, as you pointed out that, you know, they're turning these guys out essentially once a decade. And that's probably going to boost their rankings quite a bit. But, um, I mean,. The past two, the being first in the 2000s is not surprising at all. Just thinking of like the core of the team that won that 2007 title was like almost exclusively homegrown talent. Oh, yeah. Like Pedroia and Uke. And then thinking of the early 2000s when Nomar was still really good. Um, but I guess he would count towards the 90s. I don't know. Well, I guess he would have been homegrown accumulating war in the 2000s. No, he would have counted as a 90s pick. Yeah. Um, I would guess the 90s there. Yeah, yeah, because he was drafted in 94. Um, but yeah, there, I, I think you're right when, when we're thinking about the 2000s. And even just looking at my 2000s value list here, I'm seeing a lot of names from there and, and from my top list. So yeah, I would agree with you. The 2000s crushed it, man. They uh, 
They sure did. They were really good. Really good. And that's the thing. We see that around baseball too, that um, baseball in general has appreciated the fact that the Red Sox have been really good at this. And you can find members of the Red Sox front office, especially player development guys all over the place now. You know, Especially you think about uh, the Cubs and the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Pittsburgh Pirates. I mean, those are all clubs now that have uh, bodies that were here during those early 2000s uh, era when, when they were drafting these guys. Yeah, we didn't even talk about, like, that's the one decade where they kind of hit on pitching with Buckholz and Lester. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, too. Um, hitting on both of those guys, and I think Lester was 01, and if I recall correctly, Buckholz was 03. Uh, and then they also had Papelbon in 03. Yep. Papelbon, um, too. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, they definitely killed it with pitching then. So hopefully we can get a little bit of that rubbing off here. Um, but like I promised before, we're going to get to our, our two lists. So uh, we, we thought about this, this first list in a little bit of a different way. Um, when I put together my top 10 Red Sox draft picks list, I was going just by uh, guys that the Red Sox drafted and not necessarily whether or not uh, the Red Sox traded these guys and they played the better part of their career elsewhere. Um, and I think when you put this together, Keaton, you were thinking of it more Red Sox specific guys who played, uh, with the team. Yeah. Guys who were drafted and debuted with the Red Sox and, um, hopefully played the majority of their career here. Uh, so I have a couple guys on my list that you didn't, but we can discuss. All right. So let's get to our two lists here. Um, so, the way I approach this, I already talked about that. We're going to talk about the player who I had first. Uh, I'd be surprised if you didn't have him first as well. Uh, that's Roger Clemens, who is the Red Sox number one draft pick here. Uh, he was a first rounder in 1983, uh, you know, put up over well over 100 war at the pitcher position. Uh, no doubt to me, uh, the most valuable pick the Red Sox have ever made. Yep, number one for me too. We actually had the same one and two. Okay, so number two uh, was Wade Boggs uh, for both of us, seventh rounder in 1976. Uh, the Wade Boggs story is pretty interesting, and I would definitely urge all of you guys to go on and read my uh, all-time roster piece on uh, Wade Boggs that came out like maybe two, three weeks ago. Um, but Wade Boggs, man, so when he was in the minor leagues, uh, he basically challenged for or won the batting title every single year. And he hit as an amateur before he actually got drafted, too. And he could not figure out for the life of him uh, why nobody was taking him first. And it's just such a classic case of uh, his style was just not appreciated uh, to the degree that it would be now. I mean, can you imagine a Wade Boggs coming through the system right now and everybody not have him and having him universally ranked in the top 10 prospects? I could not, especially because with the um, the WOBA and the ex-WOBA revolution of the past few years, I mean, Boggs walked twice as much as he struck out. And he never really struck out like in the double digits ever. And that type of on-base ability is so coveted right now. I would be shocked if he wasn't like unanimously number one across the board. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, you know, a couple other things were going against him when he was coming up through the Red Sox system. Um, Not only did he not hit for power, which really drove people insane, um, but he wasn't a particularly good third baseman, and he was super slow. Um, So Wade Boggs was really, really good at hitting the baseball, uh, not super great at anything else, but also he didn't kill you. I mean, he ended up being a gold glover later in his career. I think that that was a little bit ceremonious, uh, you know, just kind of out of respect for how good he was in the 1980s um, when he finally did win those gold gloves. But nonetheless, we're talking about a player here who produced over 80 war um, in the seventh round. That's remarkable. Do you think with his mobility that he'd be moved to first base nowadays, or do you think because of the power they'd leave him at third? I think that they would probably leave him at third um, because the metrics actually weren't bad for him, um, especially for the part of his career when he was with the Red Sox. Um, he was generally a positive defender every single year, and he was a super positive defender um, in 1989 by Fangraphs' defensive metrics. Um, you know, his fielding percentage wasn't among the best. Uh, that we've seen, but we know that that's kind of a flawed metric too. I think what Wade Boggs was really good at was defensive positioning, and I think that made up for a lot with him. Fair. Yeah. Um, All right, so let's move on from Wade Boggs um, to the number three, and this is where we finally uh, departed from one another. Um, I had Kurt Schilling, a Red Sox second rounder in 1986. Who did you have? I had Pedroia. So, his entire body of work, obviously, it's kind of sad face now. But just his ability as a leader and the trophy case. I mean, he's got two World Series, Rookie of the Year, MVP. I mean, he's just produced. So, um, even though his draft position wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't really all that bad. But I would still give it put Pedroia here just for what he was bringing to the team. Um, so I, this is where, so even though, um, Kurt Schilling ended up playing for the Red Sox, his best years, his best chunk of his career was before he got here. So even though he was drafted by the Red Sox and played for him, I didn't have Kurt Schilling on my list because I was trying to go for guys who, uh, were drafted and debuted. And then the majority of the career was here. But I wonder what your thoughts are on me having Pedroia that high. Um, so two things. First of all, I love that we approach this list in different ways because I think it's really interesting for the listeners to be able to get it from both perspectives. Yeah. Um, second of all, I love Pedroia there. Uh, and in fact, uh, I have Pedroia on my list as well, a little bit further down. But I kept – so the more that I kept looking at Pedroia – on my list, I kept moving them up. I kept putting them above <laughs> people um, because of all the things they did, of all the the World Series that he was involved in, the MVP, the Rookie of the Year, um, the defense. Oh my God, the defense! Um, also wrote about him. Definitely check that one out as well. I'm going to be plugging my pieces a lot throughout this, but I mean they're they're very topical right here. <laughs> Worth it. Uh, yeah, um, but yeah, I love it. I, I question it a little bit over. A few of the guys from the 60s and 70s, but really, 
it's a coin flip uh, between all those guys. You could make arguments for any one of them over the other at this point. They're all A1, Tier 1 Red Sox players. Yep, I would agree. And that was, I know that the the MLB Pipeline piece was all put together basically essentially all on war. Um, and leadership doesn't really give you war. But I don't think there's a better leader of the Red Sox on this entire list than Petroya. Yeah, you know, he was uh, he was interesting in, in that regard. I think that he really set the tone with how hard he worked. Uh, I, I don't think of him as the same type of, like, vocal leader. He was vocal, but I think that just his presence on the field and how he attacked things every single day <laughs> are what kind of made it for me. I mean, how, how did you view his leadership? Yeah. I, I think that maybe Bobby Valentine would um, disagree with us on <laughs> how vocal he was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. It's the, you know, he put his heart on his sleeve out there on the field and leave it all out there and you expect the same from his teammates and he, that's what he got. Yeah. And there were also the, the other thing that is interesting about Pedroia is that he played with some of the all-time leaders on the Red Sox at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there weren't that many years where those guys were gone and he was still there. You know, so I'm thinking of he was on the team basically for his entire career at the same time as David Ortiz, um, same time as um, Jason Veritek uh, for the beginning part of his career. I mean, Euclid was a very vocal guy as well on the team. So, yeah, there there were a lot of veterans throughout the time that he was there. Um, but I do think that you're absolutely right with with the leadership piece there. Um, for me, Kurt Schilling, um, he was involved in a relatively one-sided trade. Uh, the Red Sox did trade Brady Anderson, who is going to show up on one of my lists later, uh, and Kurt Schilling to the Baltimore Orioles in exchange for Mike Boddicker on July 29th, 1988. Uh, Mike Boddicker in 1988 did actually pitch to a 2.63 ERA with the team down the stretch. Um, and had uh, two good seasons with the Red Sox after that. Um, so you can't really fault them for that. But at the same time, Kurt Schilling went on to produce like 80 war and strike out 3,000 guys and win over 200 games. So I had to put him there uh, just based on what he accomplished in the league. The shocking thing about Schilling, though, man, and this blew my mind, and every time I look at it, it still blows my mind. He never won a Cy Young. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. 
Huh. Yeah. He was second three times. He was fourth another time. <laughs> Bummer. Yeah, and he led That's, the league in strikeouts twice. Although a lot of his best years did overlap with Randy Johnson's best years, and those were some ridiculous seasons. Yeah, for sure. He had ERA pluses of 157 and 159 and 140 and 143 and never, never won the Cy Young. So. Wow. Poor Kurt, which no one says. Literally no <laughs> one says that. <laughs> uh, politics aside, though, what a fantastic pitcher. Uh, Jeff Bagwell is my number four. Uh, appropriately, Jeff Bagwell is a fourth rounder from 1989. Played zero time with the Red Sox. Also involved in a trade uh, very early on. Uh, did you even have Bagwell on your list, or because of how you nope. approached it, was he off? Yeah, no games with the Red Sox, so left him off. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, he did produce over 80 war uh, with the Houston Astros. Ended up being one of the best first basemen of all time. I uh, bet they wish they could have had this one back. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> Bagwell yeah. had himself quite a career. He really did. All right, number five. Uh, who'd you well, have, Keaton? We're, just, we're not going to talk about my number four. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Who's your number four? Maybe this is recency bias, but I, I got bets here. Okay. Um, why? Well, for just about over half a decade, being the second best player in baseball, getting a World Series and an MVP, racking up quite a significant amount of war. Um, I just think it's really hard to ignore him. I know that you have him, not to give away your list, but he's later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think what he was bringing to the Red Sox from you know, the second half of the last decade was um, he was just that good. He was that good that I would have him that high. And um, I don't think I would fault you having some of the guys um, – Kind of like you mentioned with Pedroia, like some of the guys of the 60s and 70s uh, ahead of bets here. I don't think I would fault you there, but I just, I'm that much of a bets fan, and maybe some of that is coming into this ranking, but I just think what he was bringing to the Red Sox the past six plus years, five plus years, Rivers was good enough to have him that high on the list. He's that good of a baseball player. You're absolutely right. Um, there is uh, a fantastic argument uh, for bets there. And um, I even thought about between him and Pedroia, Eileen Pedroia, because of Pedroia's additional time with the Same. team. So later on in my list, when we get to that, he is one spot ahead. Um, but the crazy thing about Mookie is that his 2018 season is basically – uh, one of the best seasons in all of baseball history, and it's one of the best Red Sox seasons ever. In fact, uh, baseball reference, uh, whose hitter war I like less than Fangraphs, and I like their pitcher war a little bit better. Um, but anyhow, their list has him second all-time uh, to uh, Carl Yastrzemski's 1967 season. Um, as the second best Red Sox season all-time above all of Ted Williams' seasons. Um, which is why I don't like that stat. Um, I don't like the B-Ref stat, but I think that it's impressive 
even still because he's squarely uh, in the middle of the top 10 uh, in Red Sox history uh, on fan graphs as well. He's seventh. He's, he's 10.4 F4 um, behind Williams, Yastrzemski, and Tris Speaker. So pretty good company to be behind. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually really interesting with the times that Williams won like the Triple Crown. I'm surprised that none of those seasons were ahead of that. That is an interesting factoid. Baseball, man. What a wild sport. Yeah, really is. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've, I've learned while researching this is just the limits of war, too. Um, there are certain things that uh, war just doesn't do a great job of. And I think that one of the things in particular that war can, can be a little bit limited in is really judging transcendent sluggers, uh, middle-of-the-order sluggers. I think that they tend to get a little less credit um, than they otherwise should. And I think sometimes you get guys who were both good hitters and good defenders uh, getting pushed way up. Um, maybe a little bit more than their actual impact on the game really is. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Yeah. Who do you, or what do you, well, I guess this is, it is a uh, incredibly broad question. But who do you think of, since you've been doing this incredibly in-depth piece, is there someone that stands out that, like, War didn't like as much as, like, popular opinion or kind of just, like, your thoughts of them as a player? And War was like, nah, this guy wasn't good. Yes. Um, I think the player that stands out most in that regard is Manny Ramirez, um, who... Interesting. Had a whole bunch of seasons when you look back, and I'm going to pull up his Fangraphs page real quick while we're talking about this. Um, but if I remember correctly, uh, a bunch of the seasons that we consider to be among the best of his entire career at the plate uh, for the Red Sox were like barely over five war seasons. Um, but how we remember him at the plate is rightfully so as one of the most dangerous hitters in all of baseball. Yeah, so for instance, uh, 2000 with the Indians batted 351 with a 677 or 697 uh, slugging percentage and a 181 WRC plus produced 4.8 WAR. Um, wow. 2004 with the Red Sox, 43 home runs, 130 RBIs, 308 again slugging percentage over 600 had a 3.3 WAR at the end of the year. Uh, 3.3 WAR does not encapsulate what Manny Ramirez meant to that baseball team that year. And just to give people an idea of who produced 3.3 war in baseball last year, uh, Tommy Pham for the Rays uh, with 21 home runs, 25 stolen bases, and a 273 uh, batting average. Um, Manny Ramirez in 2004, significantly better player than Tommy Pham. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, and so it just depends on how much you weigh defense, too. And I think that particularly with Fenway, one of the things that we see quite a bit when looking at war is that Fenway right fielders get a real boost. Fenway center fielders get a real uh, kind of a, the opposite of a boost. I don't know. Uh it's like a weight on them. Um, they don't tend to get judged quite as well. Um, and then Fenway left fielders generally get killed unless they're Yaz level transcendent. Um, and 
listening to people who watched and worked with Manny every day. I was listening to um, the Red Sox podcast at The Athletic, and they had Manny's old hitting coach uh, on, uh, blanking on his name, you probably remember it, um, but his hitting coach here with the Red Sox, I don't know why I can't think of it right now. Uh, he's, he's with the Rocket, the Rockies right now. Uh, maybe you can look that up while I'm talking about this. Um, okay. But it is not Chili Davis. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, the, the he was basically like, yeah, Manny knew how to play that wall as good as anybody. And I remember watching Manny play left field and definitely it was an adventure out there sometimes. But he had his fair share of outfield assists and uh, he seemed like he knew how to execute when he needed to in left field. He, he certainly didn't feel like a liability the same way that Hanley felt like a liability. Dave Magadan? Yeah, Magadan. Thank you. Mags. That's it. That's teamwork, Keaton. That is teamwork. That's the assist. (laughs) All right, so my number five. Um, I actually had the same number five as you. I had Carlton Fisk, who um, I think a lot of people remember for the end of his career with the White Sox, but he played about half his career with the Red Sox and was still pretty darn good. So... I think forgetting that the first half of his career came with Boston uh, is a travesty. So I had him at number five. Yeah. Um, great pick. Uh, I agree. Uh, also at number five for me. Um, interestingly, though, I do have him above a few of the guys that you had uh, ahead of him on the Red Sox. I have him above Betts and Pedroia. And for me, um, I guess what it came down to was just the fact that the catcher is involved in so much of the game. You know, he was working with the pitching staff during some pretty huge seasons, 1975 for the Red Sox, uh, 1978. Um, He got MVP votes and all-star game votes in a bunch of those seasons, won a rookie of the year, was a gold glove level defender, also a transcendent hitter. At the, cat, at the catcher position and also game six of 1975, the famous home run there. Um, there's just so much Red Sox history that's kind of wrapped up in this guy. Um, it was tough for me not to wish that he kind of finished his career with the Red Sox and also to give him credit for all that stuff. And it kind of kills me that players like this never won it with the Sox. Yep, agree with you there. And unfortunately, there's a long list of them. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, I am not surprised you had him in your top five, though, considering your soft spot for catchers, Keaton. He had 26 <laughs> bombs and 102 RBIs as a catcher with this team. Oh, yeah, I'd have been all over this guy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a dude. Uh, he also got into a pretty serious... Uh, fight with a bunch of Yankees players once and was like fighting two of them at the same time because he was so monstrously strong. So he was was pretty fun. I think he would have really liked watching him. I would have. Yeah, I would have too. All right. Um, Number six, who'd you have? Number six, I had the same as you. Freddie Lynn? Freddie Lynn. Oh my God, I love this guy. Okay, tell me why you had Freddie Lynn sixth. I mean, so we talk about defense, and I mean, that is Fred Lynn, basically. One of the best defenders Red Sox ever had. Yep. And pretty tough position. 
So yeah. I mean, what he was able to do at the plate was really just kind of icing on the cake. And I think for what he brought to the Red Sox, we were talking about kind of intangibles with Dustin Pedroia. Thought that Fred Lynn too. Yeah, Fred Lynn did everything, and uh, there were some really fun quotes uh, from Fred Clint- Fred Lynn that I found when I was uh, researching him and I was writing him up. That's the one that I had come out today as we're recording this one. Um, but I wanted to kind of bring these up to to read a few of them with you, but they were pretty insane uh i don't know this isn't good radio so i will stop um but uh, sorry i couldn't bail you out of that one no no um i I should have thought of these before but basically fred lynn to, to sum it up uh said that he played like he was gonna put his body in the way of you know he was gonna do whatever it took to get the ball regardless of whatever and famously like he crashed into uh, unpadded walls and the Red Sox later padded walls because of him flying into walls at full speed. Uh, he made credible diving catches. Uh, he probably wasn't quite as good a natural defender as Jackie Bradley Jr. is, but he like probably made a lot of the same plays while hitting uh, slightly better than Mookie Betts hit over his 794 games with the team, uh, which is kind of crazy. He actually did post Uh, better overall numbers and when you look at his 1979 season for Fred Lynn where he basically just went bananas and his 75 season was also insanely good um, you know you you see why Uh, and when people started comparing Mookie to Fred Lynn uh, a bunch of people our age were offended and then I was like whoa whoa have you guys actually seen Lynn's numbers this is actually a great comparison yeah Definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot of people that, similar to like Mookie Betts's effects on the fan base and how people just kind of like latch on to him immediately, like there's a whole generation of Red Sox fans that did the exact same thing with Fredlin. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. And, and that 75 season was insane. I mean, you're talking about a kid who was 23 years old coming in and putting up a seven plus war season, batting 330 with over 100 runs, 100 RBI. In uh, you know, going to the World Series, and he hits a huge home run in Game Six of the World Series too. It's just crazy, crazy legendary stuff. And um, you know, he had a quote that the only thing that went wrong in his career was basically not being able to stay healthy second half and leaving Fenway. He was a he was a ridiculously good hitter at Fenway Park. Career three forty seven at Fenway. With yeah, that's pretty darn slug. good. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, interesting thing that I learned about him is that he still owns the Fenway Park record for uh, home runs by a lefty uh, with 28 home runs, which is more than what David Ortiz ever hit at Fenway Park in a single season. Yeah, did you learn that from the athletic quiz? I don't know. Or Maybe I did. Your, that's where I learned it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun quiz. It was a fun quiz, yeah. I only got uh, a 58 on that quiz out of a hundred. Uh, and I had talked to Jen about that. I was like, Hey, I took the quiz. It was super fun. I got a 58 and I was like expecting it to be a terrible score. And she was like, Oh, that's the highest score that I've heard yet because I made it so hard. And so I was like, okay, I don't feel so bad about it now. Yeah. That makes me feel better about my 48. I felt (laughs) really bad about myself. (laughs) No, that quiz was insane. 
Oh yeah, that was super hard. Yeah, it was one. Of the, I mean, it was the most obscure facts from the media guide possible uh, put into one quiz. So, um, props to Jen for making us all feel like we've never watched the Red Sox before when we <laughs> took that quiz. Uh, yeah. So, um, all right. So let's keep moving on here from Fred Lynn, who is just the best. To my number seven was Dustin Pedroia. We've already talked about him, so let's talk about your number seven. My number seven was Dwight Evans. Ooh, nice. Surprise with someone that you left off your list. Yeah. um, Dwight Evans, people are going to start thinking that I hate Dwight Evans because I left him off my all-time 40-man. I left him off the top 10 Sox draft picks. Dwight Evans, man, he's great, but he just kept missing my lists because he was never... um, He was never... He never had those years like Fisk had or like Betts had or like Pedroia had when he was truly one of the best players in baseball. I think his top MVP finish was third, but his top worst seasons like 6.6 war. I think he's a guy that would have been appreciated a little bit more today if he played. He was a great right fielder, but um, overall, like his career, the length of his career uh, is probably the most impressive thing about Dwight Evans more than what he did in any particular season to me. That's fair. I mean, he was an incredibly average baseball player from a war perspective, but like you said, for just an incredible length of time. And the yeah. longevity piece is really what I have him on that for. Cause even though he only had two seasons where he had a war over six, he still accumulated a war of 65.1 by Fangraphs mark for his entire career. I mean, you got to be around producing for quite a significant amount of time to put up that kind of number. So, based on his longevity, that's where I, I had him on my list. So, I guess I don't fault you for leaving him off, but I was surprised that he was one that didn't make your list. Yeah, and I think that um, he was somebody that when you talk about uh, Dwight Evans really coming into his own as a baseball player, people talk about like 1980, 1981, 1982 as kind of the best stretch of his career. Um, and famously, he was having by far a career year. It was actually his highest war total of his career in 1981, which was shortened by a strike. Um, so he never got to finish out a year where he was batting 296, 415, 522. Uh, and he was also hobbled by a bunch of injuries later in his career, which kind of hurt his effectiveness. But I mean, over the course of the guy's career, he had some monster years, including 1987, where he randomly had a 156 uh, WRC+. plus. So I think I probably don't give him quite enough credit, but there's just so many damn good Red Sox players, it's tough to like figure out where he fits. Fair. If you, if you were to rank the top 10 Red Sox mustaches, would you make your top 10? Oh, hell yeah. He'd probably be like, one? He's up there, right? I it's mean, Boggs is up there. Ones that are better, yeah. And Boggs had a pretty good one, but I, I think Dewey's was better. I agree. We probably have a bunch of uh, dead ball era guys that would have pretty good ones, like super curly Raleigh fingers esque. Yeah, but non ironically, <laughs> like not a bit. Yeah. Who's <laughs> the um? Shoot, the A's reliever. That was the, Raleigh. No, currently. That, oh. That, uh, oh. That's going to bother me. Was uh, it Dave Mengden? Mengden, yeah. Mengden. Dave, yeah. Dave Mengden. Yeah, you he got did it. the same thing. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
Okay. Um, Good baseball stash. Number eight for me, Mookie Betts. Who is number eight for you? Number eight for me, Jim Rice. Ooh, nice. Uh, Jim Rice is my number nine, so I will just say that right off the bat. Um, why'd you go? Why'd you go with Rice nine? Or why'd you go with? Uh, let me ask you this. So I have Rice obviously on my list. I don't have Dewey on my list. Why do you have him below Dewey? Well, I mean, it's the longevity thing on Evans. Um, he has, by Fangraphs, has uh, over 15 more career war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, by the same mark, Jim Rice only had two seasons where he had over six war. Right. Uh, by Fangraphs, Mark. So those were the same. And Evans just did it for longer. And also, I met Dwight Evans once. So that might have <laughs> been some personal bias. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for me... This one comes down to, I guess, a bias that I have when I'm judging baseball players is absolute peak for me. Uh, that's that's the, the number one thing that I look at. Like, if, if you were ever one of the most impactful players in baseball, then you're probably going to be on a list of mine. Um, but 77, 78, 79 for him, and particularly his 78 season, uh, he was pretty much you know, one step below peak David Ortiz in terms of what you were you were going up against when he was at the plate uh, that year. He had 46 home runs, 139 yeah. RBIs, 315. Just could could not get that guy out that season. Yeah, doing it all hitting over 300 too. Yeah, I mean that's so rare for uh, a guy with that type of power. Uh, didn't strike out a ton. Uh, lost his vision a little bit later in his career and, and wasn't as effective. But, you know, for a lot of this career, he was also playing left field for the Red Sox, which, you know, he wasn't too bad at either. So um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't Yaz out there, but pretty good. Uh, and he's a Hall of Famer, too. So that's what also did it for me. I think there's a lot of people lobbying for Dwight Evans to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but unfortunately for him, it seems like we might have to continue to wait for that. Maybe a veterans committee thing someday. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. It'll be. I mean, his peak was, it was so truncated to really kind of like those three seasons. But I mean, the rest of his career was not that bad, but his, like when you're talking about his peak, it was kind of a limited window. I think it's tough in baseball for those guys to get in. Yeah, you have to have some really, really iconic seasons in order to push you over when you're on the bubble like that. I mean, he was—he had a tough time getting into the Hall of Fame, though. Jim Rice, that took a really long time, if you remember. I don't. Yeah, take your word. It was only very recently that Jim Rice was inducted. I don't have the exact uh, date. Oh, wow, that's bad. Yep. <laughs> I was actually at the game when the Red Sox retired his number. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it was only in 2009 um, that he was inducted. So he he spent a whole lot of time on that ballot. I think it was one of the last years he was eligible, if I remember correctly. That sounds right. All right, so who was your number nine guy? My number nine was Nomar. Oh, love it. He's my number ten guy. Uh, so let's talk some Nomar. Um What's your favorite Nomar memory? Um, that's um, really kind of like 
doing some humble brags on this podcast, but in 2004, I was at the game against Minnesota when he returned from the disabled list and hit a grand slam. Not only that, I was in center field, and it was 20 feet to my right. And I went nuts. Well then, Keaton, uh, if you're sharing your transcendent baseball memories with me, who never had any brushes with Nomar's greatness, uh, that is pretty cool. I am happy you got to see him before he was shipped off uh, unceremoniously. Uh, definitely check out my piece on Nomar. Plug. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about like a sustained peak. I mean, he had four consecutive seasons with a war over six and was just such a good player at the end of the 90s and was really like, I mean, he was like my generation's Fredlin. Like me and all my friends grew up wanting to be Nomar and imitating his little glove shenanigans at the plate. I mean, like he was our dude. Yeah. Um, Nomar was a very rare baseball player. Um, the yeah. fact that he played a premium defensive position Hit that well from the very beginning of his career. He was an excellent college baseball player as well, so he was kind of like well known before that. Um, but the fact that he did all this and he did damage and played really good defense early in his career as well, while not striking out at all, made him incredibly rare. He was one of the only guys ever to strike out. I believe it was, uh, and it's in my piece, but I forget it right now. But I think it was like under fifty times or less in a season while slugging 600. And he's one of the very few people ever to do that. Um, and that was in his 99 or 2000 year. I think it was a 2000 season where he batted 372, which also was remarkable because it was one of the highest batting averages. It was the highest batting average by a right-hander since Joe DiMaggio hit like over 380. Um, wow. So when we're talking about Nomar doing that as a right-handed batter in the game of baseball, I mean, that is just ridiculously hard to do yeah that is pretty impressive and it was uh one of the um well never mind as i'm kind of scanning this that was pretty average for a strikeout rate so it wasn't like he was kind of battling around that but i mean throughout his entire career even his injury shortened seasons he was either hitting like at 300 or over it so i mean even though he got limited on the field he was still producing in the times that he was so it's just a, he's one of those guys where, like, Ken Griffey Jr. is the immediate one that comes to mind when you think of, like, careers that you wish stayed healthy. And, I mean, Nomar's right at the top for me, too. Oh, yeah. If Nomar stays healthy, I think we're looking at him as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, I would agree. Pretty easily. Um, and I, I still, I love that quote from A-Rod about how, you know, what was it? I'm the youngest, uh... Jeter's Jeter's the highest paid. Jeter's the richest, and Nomar's the best. That's still like the best quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was he was my number ten. Uh, who was your number ten? Mo Vaughn. Ooh, nice. So Mo Vaughn snuck on the end of my list because he did play the majority of his career with the Red Sox, and I mean he was consistently socking forty dingers, hitting over three hundred, racking up WAR. Um. I understand the way that you approached it, having the other guys on the list ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because the way that I was approaching the list was able to squeak him on there at number 10. Just for the yeah. Just in the 90s. It's hard for me to leave off a Red Sox MVP, the hit dog. Um, yeah, he was a, just a great hitter. Um, he's another one with a really short peak. Uh, you know, all things considered, I think he's one of the other guys that 
when you talk about what his career would have been like if he stayed with the Red Sox. That's a discussion we often have about Fred Lynn, but it's another discussion that I think needs to be had about Mo Vaughn too and both guys who went to the same damn team. So I think the thing to uh, to to tell all transcendent Red Sox players is do not go play for the California Angels or the uh, <laughs> LA Angels of Anaheim or whatever the hell they call themselves these days. Yeah, it's interesting to think of like the 99-2000 season if he was there with like the performances that Pedro put up, would they have been able to tie that together and kind of, you know, beat 2004 to the punch? Mm. Yeah, they were, they were always a little short pitching during those times, but maybe they would have been able to just bash their way through. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. He was a great player. All right, so since this pod is going a little bit long, we co- we spent a little bit of extra time on our, our top 10 uh, draft picks of all time. I want to yeah, each run through our top 10 value lists, and then maybe we'll pick like a couple guys to highlight before we get to listener questions. Uh, well, I didn't have time to make one. Because, oh. Uh, I was dealing with fires at work, so um, I just got to the one list I did make about 40 minutes before we started recording. Well, right so on. we can just talk about yours. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so here's my list of, of top 10 value uh, picks uh, by the Red Sox. Uh, number one was Wade Boggs with the seventh rounder. Uh, number yeah. two was Mookie Betts with the fifth rounder. Number yeah. three, Dwight Evans with the third. Number four for me, Jeff Bagwell, Jeff Bagwell with a fourth. Oh, excuse me. Um, number five, Kevin Euclid with an eighth round pick. Number six, Anthony Rizzo, another guy that didn't get to play with the Red Sox with a six-rounder. Number seven with Jonathan Papelbon, uh, in my opinion, the second greatest closer in Red Sox history, um, with a fourth-rounder. Number eight, David Eckstein, uh, future uh, angel, uh, with a 19th-rounder. That was a pretty good snag. Uh, number nine, John Valentin with a fifth-rounder. And number 10, Brady Royd Hulk Anderson with a 10th-rounder in 1985. Any of those guys stand out to you? No. No, I thought that was a pretty solid list. And see, you don't hate Dwight Evans. You got him right there. Number three. Yeah. I like Dewey. I just can't figure out a way to get him on the team. (laughs) You know what it is, too? If the Red Sox didn't have so many ridiculously good left fielders, it would be so much easier to work him into all of these conversations when we talk about greatest Red Sox ever. But once you fill left center right and your your decision is bets or dwight for a right and i'm gonna go bets every time then everybody else on your team has to be a left fielder because left fielders are all insane yep <laughs> that's a pretty tough position to crack the list yeah <clears throat> yeah it's it's crazy good um but I'll, I'll just hit on uh one guy in particular that stuck out to me um i had forgot that uke was a draft pick for the Red Sox. For some reason, I built up in my mind over the years that they had traded for Uke from someone else. That it was just like a they identified that that was a guy that they really wanted. But the fact that they were on Uke uh, and saw him and was able to take a guy like that who really did not look the part of a very athletic guy. Um, but they turned into one of the most feared hitters in all of baseball um, in the eighth round in 2001. That's just a great player development story. Yeah, and was um, on that 2014. That was uh, what he made his debut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a huge component, obviously, of the 07 team. And 
Um, I don't know. I really – he was one of my favorite guys to watch. He had a really weird uh, batting stance too. You remember how weird he would hold that bat? He would have like one yeah. hand kind of almost like so floating. Together. You think like you could just give him a little push and knock him over. <laughs> yeah, and he had his hands very high too when he was yeah. hitting. So he was a interesting player. It was like Kevin Millar's stance when he revamped it if it was closed instead of open. Mm. Yeah, Kevin Millar always – Held that bat like a cartoon character. <laughs> like like is you expected the bat to say Acme on it. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's move on from this list of uh, value picks um, to our listener questions. And then we'll get out of here. We'll wrap it up for you guys. Hope you enjoyed that discussion. Um, first pick. Uh, first pick. Yeah. Question. Sorry. I'm in draft mindset. Comes from <laughs> Andrew Amir. Um, and this one I think is very directed towards Matt and the Twitter account, <laughs> but we're going to try and answer it anyways. Uh, he says, I disagree with your opinion about baseball players. If they don't play because of the financials, they're missing out on a golden opportunity to be part of the national healing process, and I don't think anyone will ever forgive them for it. Keaton, this one is tailor-made for you. Why don't you go ahead and uh, get in there? Yeah. <laughs> I respect your opinion, Andrew, but... Um... I just I don't need like a Marlins Royals Wednesday night game to make me feel better about a hundred thousand people dead. So the national healing process I just just think is such a joke. And <laughs> just like I'd rather have the least amount of people die. That'll make me feel better, just personally. But I respect your opinion and we can agree to disagree. All right, and I have nothing to add there, so I am moving on. Um, CJ Lemire, masked and gloved, asks us, at what point will the Red Sox and MLB no longer be able to uh, avoid refunding my season tickets? Uh, when this season is finally canceled, I guess, right? That's it? I guess they're really – I mean, we're pretty close to the uh, the natural midway point at this point, right? Can't be far off from 81. We're like three months into it. Yeah. So, yeah. That's brutal. I apologize for that. That sucks. But, yeah, they're going to hang on until the very last possible moment. Until they, like, can salvage some part of the season. And then I I would assume that they would refund on, like, a prorated basis. But it's the MLBs. So, <laughs> that's not a guarantee. Yeah. If they're not paying Mike Trout. What he's owed. They might not pay you either. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we actually had tickets, buddy of mine, uh, to come out to your neck of the woods, Keaton, to see the Red Sox at Wrigley. And uh, we are not going to get to do that. And they have still not refunded us for those tickets. Nope. Yeah, I was looking forward to uh, seeing them play both teams out here in Chicago. Get a couple series in. But joke's on me. Yep. Bummer. Uh, Shane Bua has our next question. He says, you guys remember trying to stay up for the end of West Coast games? Sure do. Yeah, Although, this whole thing has my sleep schedule so bunked up that it would be a breeze to watch like a 14-inning West Coast game right now. Oh, 100%. Wouldn't even be a struggle. I've been like reading crappy books until 1 o'clock in the morning, so I would definitely be uh, be staying up for those West Coasters willingly right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, last question comes from friend of the podcast, Zach NC Dinos season. Uh, and Zach says, if you could go out to eat with anyone on the 40 man roster, who would it be? 
and where would you go after things open back up? Raphael Devers, and I would go to a fancy restaurant to watch him order off the kids' menu and devour all of it. <laughs> uh, or or um, Chavis, and just watch him house the largest steak on the menu. Okay. Huh. I would go out to dinner with Xander Bogarts, and we would go to a very fancy tasting menu somewhere, and I feel like he would be very nicely dressed up. It would be a it would be a date, almost. You know that actually brings up a good point. Senator Bogart's best dressed current Red Sox. Yeah, easily, right? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I can't think of anybody that would be even close to challenging. Dude maybe, is just slick looking individual. Style, but I don't think he's on Bogart's level. No, no, Bogart's is definitely the the best looking member of the team, and I feel like. Bogarts being as worldly as he is, like he probably knows his way around the wine menu. He's probably tried a lot of interesting foods. He probably like you would you would go out, you would have a nice time with Xander Bogarts, and you'd feel good about it at the end of the night. You wouldn't feel sloppy. You wouldn't be going home like really drunk. You'd just be like happy that you went out. I would agree. That's a solid choice. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to end the podcast there. We do hope you enjoyed some draft talk today, a little draft history talk. As we get closer, we will uh, hit on a little bit more what the Red Sox actually might do uh, in the draft. Um, we do hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, go on, rate and review us. Subscribe to our show. Follow us on Twitter. You can find me at DevJake. You can find Keaton at the Spoken Keats. You can find the Over the Monster account at, at Over the Monster. Keaton, what you working on these days? Anything uh, you want to you get out there and tout? I forgot what week it is. Oh, uh, things that made you cry week. Um, no, or what was? Or no, that yeah. was the yeah That's things it. that made you cry. Yeah. Yep. So uh, my contribution to the roundtable on Friday will be about um, Aaron Boone's home run. Well, mine will too. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a toss-up between that and Ortiz's speech um, to Fenway Park in 2013. Um, that one didn't so much make me cry as just like make me want to run through a wall and just got real emotional in a different sense. But uh, I definitely remember a tear or two when a, a young 13-year-old Keaton stayed up to watch all of Game 7. Hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, for me, uh, I'm still cranking out my uh, all-time Red Sox 40-man series. Um, if you haven't checked out the latest ones, uh, just did Ted Williams, Fred Lynn. Uh, I have another one coming out on Friday. Uh, it's going to be Mookie Betts. And then I have uh, the big man, big man at DH uh, coming out next week. So you know who that is. Yeah. It's going to be sweet. Uh, and then I'm going to be moving over to the starting pitchers uh, and uh, the relievers on the team. So it's going to be a whole lot of fun. It's kind of already flying through. I can't believe I'm like 1,700 or 17,000 words into this thing at this point. <laughs> Wild. But uh, here we are. Well, thank you guys for uh, for joining us today. And uh, we will be with you again next week. 